All right, as the kids are making their way out, can you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8. And as you are doing that, and as the kids are making their way out, uh, I mentioned we had our elders retreat this weekend, which was great. We're so excited to share with you uh, where we feel God's leading us. Um, but one of, the, one of the blessings was we went away actually with two other churches. So we, we had our elders retreat with Cornerstone and with Countryside. And we had our first opening session together and we worshiped together and then we broke off and we uh, sought the Lord as, as separate churches. And then we came together again and worshiped and just shared where God was leading us. And um, one, of the, one of the blessings for me is just to reflect on the way that God has kept these partnerships together. Because uh, we do deeply believe that we can't reach the city alone. And, and I'm thankful for all of the different works that God is doing. And one of the blessings, uh, the remnants of our time with Cornerstone is uh, this thing called the five G's of the gospel. And sometimes I feel like you've heard this one billion times, but I'm reminded that a lot of you are, are relatively new faces. You never even went to Cornerstone. You only have known us since we've been here. So just raise your hands. When I say the five G's of the gospel, you know the five G's of the gospel? This is like 50%. I'm going to start with this because we're going to be talking a lot about the gospel today. And this has been such a helpful tool for me. Um, it's not it's not a, a tool that everyone needs to use. It's just a helpful tool. Pastor Paul prepared it, and it's been cemented in my mind. So when we're explaining the gospel, you know, sometimes we take for granted that, that everybody in the room knows what we mean by the gospel. So here's a challenge for you, actually. As you go home uh, and you go about your week, if you are here and you're maybe with a spouse or maybe you're with a friend or you know a friend, I, I want to challenge you this week to turn to your spouse and to say, hey, can you explain the gospel to me? Because as Christians, we need to be able to do that, right? And then when, when that person's done, it's like, okay, my turn. Now I'm going to try. And uh, I remember my wife and I used to do this as we were driving back and forth to Aurelia. And it was a really formative time in our lives. Because at the end of the day, what, what do we have? We're going into a broken, lost world. And what do they need? Uh, they, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the weapon I have. I pull out this weapon. This is my weapon. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's salvation for the lost. So I want to be able to communicate it. So this 5G's tool has been really helpful for me just as I get flustered and I think, am I saying what I need to say very quickly? The first G is God. So as I begin and I try to share the gospel with someone, I begin here. There is a God. You know, if you don't believe that, then nothing else I say matters. But he's the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything. And in fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that as we look at his creation, all of it is testifying to the fact that he is there. And I believe that in my heart, that Romans 1 is true. That my unbelieving neighbor, when he sees the sunset, he might suppress the truth. But he knows there is a God who made this beautiful world. There is. And he made the world, and he made the world with structure and rules and order. There's a moral fabric that's ingrained into the world. And we all feel it. Because sometimes we do things and we know it's wrong. And, and before somebody even points at it and tells us it's wrong, even if nobody's witnessed that it's wrong, we just know, oh, that was wrong, right? So he's made the world. He's the boss of the world. This is his house. He makes the rules. That's G1. G2, and we're all guilty, guilty, because every one of us can think of a time when we did something and that, that moral fabric, we knew that was wrong. We said something and we knew that was wrong. We, we carried this guilt, this shame. There was something inside of us that said, I have done wrong. And in fact, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so you're correct in your assessment. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short. We've all done wrong. 
And since we're living in God's house and God makes the rules, that's a problem because the Bible says that the penalty for sin, that's what that is, is death. God is holy and in our sin, that makes us unholy, which means we're separated from him. We were made to be with him and now we're separated. That's a terrible problem. You say, well, I thought the gospel is good news. It is good news, but you have to see the bad news to understand the good news. So the problem is I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God. But that brings us to G3, which is grace. That God, even though, I'm, even though I'm a sinner, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have life everlasting. God did this scandalous, incredible thing. He came to us. The Lord Jesus Christ came to us and he lived that perfect life that we never could live. He never once felt that pang of guilt. He never once did that thing and, and thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. No, he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross. He died on the cross for sin. Well, whose sin did he die for? It wasn't his sin because he's never sinned. Well, the Bible says he died for the sins of all of those who have repented and put their trust in him. So the Bible says, what must we do to be saved? Confess your sin. Repent. Turn away from it and put your trust in Jesus Christ. We're going to have communion today where we come back to this glorious reminder that this is why we're saved. Right? And that's the beautiful story of grace. You, didn't, you don't earn it. How do you become a Christian? By being really good, doing lots of great stuff? No. Jesus was really good. Jesus did lots of great stuff. And he's offered this gift freely to us. Turn from your sin, cling to Jesus, and you are saved. That's grace. That's the best news in the whole world. And you might think, oh, good, well, we can stop there. But actually, we can't stop there because then you wake up the next day and you've got a life to live. And that leads us to G4, which is gratitude. You see, because when we, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we're saved, this thing is happening where God is changing our old stone heart and he's giving us a heart of flesh and he's doing that by the power of his Holy Spirit who he's placed in us. And now he's changing what we want from the inside. And so people should look at us as Christians and they should see a life that's changing. This guy loves going to church. That's weird. He loves singing with his friends. That's weird. He reads his Bible. He, he doesn't want, he's not going to go along with us in this deceitful scheme at work. He, you know, she's, she's respecting her husband around the water cooler. Like, what is happening? Well, we're changing. And we're not doing that to earn God's love. We've already received it. That's grace. We're doing it in a response of gratitude to what we've already received. And that gratitude shapes our lives. And it brings us to G5 because we can't stop there either. G5 is glory. And that reminds us that this life we're living is a mist. It's a vapor. It is, it is this small. It feels like everything, doesn't it? It's not. It's this. But God has made us to, to be with him in glory forever. That's why we exist, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so you put your trust in Jesus and you receive this grace and yet life is still hard and you, you can't be disoriented by that because God doesn't promise to give you an easy life. He promises glory that you'll be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have to have a mind that's shifted to understand this. And that's glorious news for a world that is completely disoriented. Our friends are, are stressed. Our friends are anxious. Our friends are putting their trust in all kinds of authorities that are shifting every single day. And whether they'll say it or not, it is a disorienting time. In the studies at the elders retreat, we were, Pastor Paul had pulled out some studies of, of just how mental health is spiraling especially in the generation under me, spiraling because we have no authority to trust in, no foundation to build our lives upon. And, and as we watch the world shifting like this sinking sand, we're, people are wondering, you know, is there any hope at all? And as Christians, we come forward and we say, yes, there is. And what is the hope that we have? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Are you able to share the hope that you have? The answer to that question for every single one of us needs to be yes. And so I just challenge you this week, it doesn't need to be the 5G's tool, you, the, the Romans road, the little bridge with the, you know, the chasms and the bridge. You might have whatever tool is helpful for you as long as it is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's our, our lengthy intro as we turn to this text. I don't want to assume that you understand what the gospel is, but what we see in this text is that the gospel changes everything. It is, it is powerful, it's transformative. And here in Acts chapter 8, we're in the midst of this seismic shift in the church. A seismic shift. So if you've been tracking along, then you know what I'm going to say. You could probably say it with me. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find what I've called the table of contents for the book of Acts. Where Jesus gives his people a mission, and he says, you, uh, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so now as we're walking through the book of Acts, we watch this mission in Jerusalem, but here he's turning the page to this next stage of the mission as the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria. And this is a very big deal. And yet this isn't actually new. Long before Acts chapter 1 verse 8, all the way back when God made his promise to Abraham in the Old Testament, he said, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Can I turn off your bass amp? This is, I, there's something buzzing at me over here and I can't, I don't even know how to do this. There, probably nobody else can hear that, but it's really loud. Um, all right, focus. This has always been the plan, that God would bless the nations. That's always been the plan. So even as he was working with this, this group of people, this distinct group of people in this distinct place, his plan was for that blessing to extend to the world. And what we're seeing in our text today is that that beautiful blessing is branching out. And this is, as I said, a seismic shift in the church. It's a very big deal. And so we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to walk through why this is such a beautiful and glorious transformation. So look with me to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 4 all the way to the end of verse 25. Before I do, I'm just going to take a moment, let's be still, invite the Lord to speak to us through his word. Lord, I pray that you would just quiet our hearts now. We've had a big week, a busy week. Uh, Lord, we've heard lots of voices from lots of different directions, but we know that we need to hear from you. And Lord, we just acknowledge that uh, this morning it would be an, an absolute waste of our time if we gathered and we didn't humble ourselves to hear from the living God. As we've said, Lord, the, we don't want to build our lives on, on, on the sand. We don't want to build our lives on something that's, that's shifting day to day. We want to hear from the God who made us, the creator of heaven and earth. Thank you for your word. It goes forth and it never returns void. You promised that. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. You said that. So we come with great expectation. Help us to see what we need to see. Uh, I pray by your spirit that you would preach a better sermon uh, than anything that's, that I've written on this page. And I thank you that you know what we need to hear. Lord, so speak now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, and, and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and the great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now there's, there are some really um, interesting details in this story. You've got Simon the magician. Um, you also have this delay in the receiving of the Spirit. And those are big questions. And we're going to deal with all those questions as we work through the story. But I want to make sure that we see that the big rock item that we're meant to see here. And that is that the gospel is breaking new ground. That, that's, that's why we find this story, where we find it in the book of Acts. The gospel is moving out of Jerusalem. It's breaking new ground. And we're going to ask one overarching question, which is, what happens when the gospel breaks new ground? The other day I came across this video on YouTube because uh, apparently I watched too much YouTube, and I repent of that. But I watch, I watch it with Luke a lot of the times. He loves these nature videos. And so YouTube told me that I should watch this video of this woman who had this octopus and she was playing with it. And she just, it was just going back and forth in her hands. And, and then finally, you know, they're all laughing. And then she releases it. And only to find out that this octopus was a blue-ringed octopus, which, as it turns out, is one of the most venomous animals in the planet. And if, it had, if it, this little cute little thing had bit her, she would have died. But she was just playing with it like it was nothing. And uh, I'm going to say that the Lord allowed that to pop up in my algorithm because... I walked away from that in light of what we're looking at here, and I think, man, we do that with the gospel sometimes. You know, sometimes we treat this glorious news that God has given to us, we treat it so flippantly. It, we're so casual with it. You know, like, oh, did you hear the Leafs won last night? Oh, and, and through Jesus, we can receive forgiveness for our sins. As if this is just one, one other fact that you might share with someone in the day. Do we not realize that this message that we proclaim is a life-transforming, uh, transformation-demanding, flip-your-life-upside-down message that brings dead people to life? The power of what we have, the power of this message that we've been entrusted with, changes the world. 
And we see it here in this story. And I, I just thought, man, Lord, I, forgive me. I lose sight of that. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm going to hazard a guess that sometimes we lose sight of this. And we can be so casual, so flippant. But no, it changes everything. And I want to pull out just three ways that we see the gospel changing everything. As, as the gospel is breaking new ground, as people who have never heard the gospel before are hearing it now in Samaria, what happens? Three things. First, as the gospel breaks new ground, it displaces lesser powers. So these persecuted believers, if, uh, if you were with us last Sunday, this is obviously an overflow of what, what Matt shared with us last week. So they've, they've been persecuted. Remember, Stephen was stoned. And uh, the church is being chased out of Jerusalem. Some of them are being thrown into prison. So they, they flee. And they scatter to all the surrounding nations. And we find that Philip here winds up in Samaria. And as he comes to Samaria, he meets this man named Simon, who is, who is famous in the community. In fact, not, not just famous. We read in verse 10, this is what people said about Simon in the community. They pointed at Simon and they said, This man is the power of God that is called great. So that's, that's some kind of authority in the community that people would point at him and, and say, he is actually a walking, talking manifestation of the power of God. That's who Simon is. So he is a celebrity, right? And Philip comes into the town and everybody reveres Simon. Everybody looks to Simon. But then as Peter comes and he preaches this gospel and God adorns that gospel with these powerful manifestations of his spirit, all of a sudden, everybody who was following Simon turns their attention and they say, forget Simon. This is, this is magnificent. And people who revered Simon suddenly bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then on top of that, not only do they bow their knee, but Simon himself bows the knee. Now this is fascinating. It, the, the text describes him as a magician. And I'm going to guess that, that maybe there are a few of us that when we read that, our mind thinks of the magician in Vegas. You know, We're thinking of he's pulling out flowers from his thing and he's impressing the crowd. That's not what is happening in this text. He's a magician like the magicians that we find uh, working for Pharaoh in Egypt who are able to turn a, serp, a, a staff into a snake who are wielding real dark spiritual power. And we, we bristle at that. We're not so sure. But anyone who's done any kind of global mission and been outside of this little North American bubble knows the, the things that are being recounted in these stories. That's reality. The occult is a dark scary place. There are dark spiritual powers at work in the world. And yet we see consistently in Scripture that the power of darkness is no match for the power of God. And we see that again here in this story. And so in verse 13, we read this amazing detail. This man who had been wielding the power of darkness and using it to a massive following, it says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the town magician now has bowed the knee to King Jesus. The rest of the community has bowed the knee to King Jesus. And everything's transforming. And it reminds me of, um, if you've ever done the science experiment with your kids, or maybe by yourself, that's fine. You know, when you've got, you know, a little bowl of water, or better yet, milk, and then you put little drops of food coloring in there. And then you take the Dawn dish soap, and you just a little squirt, just a little drop of dish soap. And what happens? All of those colors immediately jettison out to the outside of the bowl. They're displaced. That's what Dawn dish soap does, right? It displaces everything else and pushes it out to the periphery, and it remains at the center because that's where it belongs. Well, that's what the gospel does. When the gospel comes in, it displaces all lesser powers. Nothing else can be at the center when the true gospel comes in. 
right? And so everybody's bowing their knee to King Jesus, including Simon the Magician, because all the lesser powers have been displaced. And in fact, this transformation in the city is so miraculous, so amazing, that Simon, having bowed the knee to Jesus, is just he's stupefied by what he sees, and he says, I think I want some of that. Right? He knows what it is to wield power. He's been wielding dark power all his life. And he says, now I want to wield that power. So he comes to the apostles, or he comes to Philip, and the text says, now when Simon saw, he came to the apostles. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So, little tidbit, to this day, those who try to uh, obtain positions of spiritual authority with money, uh, that is referred to as simony. And that's pointing back to this story. It's, it's evil, it's wicked. You, can't, you, don't, you don't buy spiritual authority. You don't buy the, the transformation that comes about by the Holy Spirit. You can't just obtain that with money. You can't package that and sell that. Though many try, don't they? I mean, you've got, you've got a thriving self-help book market where they're trying, we're trying to package life transformation in a little book and for the low, low price of $15.99, I can change your life. You know, and that's what we do. And, and we try to package it other ways. Sometimes even as, maybe as parents, we... We commit our own little form of simony with our legalism and our moralism where we try to, we think we can shape somebody's life without the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Simon learned this lesson the hard way. Can't do it. The authority-displacing, life-transforming power of the gospel only comes through the work of the Spirit of God. And for that reason... When you go out and you share this gospel we've talked about, and a person says that they've put their trust in Jesus Christ, you should watch expectantly for a transformed life. Because when the Spirit comes in, all lesser powers go out. Right? To go back to that science experiment, if I've got the bowl of milk and I've got the food color there, and then I, I grab what says it's Dawn dish soap and I squirt it in, and it just takes position with all of the other things in there and nothing moves, well, then that, that's not the real thing, is it? That's, I know it's not the real thing because I've seen this time and time again. I know just the very nature of the dish soap dispels every lesser thing. And that's the very nature of the gospel when it is received in faith. When the Holy Spirit comes in, all lesser powers go out. Now, am I saying that that means that every person who puts their trust in Jesus becomes a perfect person? No, I'm not saying that. Of course, the change is, is it's gradual, it's slow, and yet, when the gospel goes in, Jesus takes his position at the center. And everything else, if, so if you're watching that life and other things are sitting on the throne as central, as first, if, if they're still a slave to sin, the Apostle Paul uses that language in Romans 6, if they're still a slave to sin, then, then the gospel hasn't come in. Because when it breaks new ground, it displaces all lesser powers. Does that make sense? And so we watch for that, and we watch for that with expectation. And it's a beautiful, glorious thing when you witness it. I just had the privilege of meeting with someone this week and got to just listening them, to them describe their life. And it was that, right? The gospel displaced everything else. That's the first thing that we learn in this story. Second, we learn in this story that when the gospel breaks new ground, 
it creates a new community. There's a beautiful unifying power that comes with the gospel. I'm always a little bit wary and suspicious of Christians who have this ability to divide everywhere they go. Because the true gospel creates unity and creates new community. We're going to get to it later in this text, but this is a group of people, the Jews and the Samaritans. Matt mentioned it last week. They hated each other. You know, and we, we, some of us know this, but I think when we get to really consider this in our next point, we'll catch a glimpse of how they hated each other. And yet the gospel brought them together. And Luke obviously thought this was a miracle. He thought this was glorious. And he noticed something in this story that God did to make this miracle possible. He highlighted this detail, which is the most perplexing detail in the story. Now, some of us just breeze past it, but I want you to notice that these folks, Philip comes and he preaches, and what happens? They repent and they believe. They put their trust in Jesus. And, and, and so Philip sees this and he, he baptizes these folks. He says, this is the real thing. And yet, it's not until the apostles come that these repentant, believing, baptized Christians receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a delay between their conversion and their receiving of the Spirit. That should trigger something in your mind. That is weird. That's not the pattern. So perhaps maybe before we can appreciate what we're seeing, I want to just show you the pattern. So from the, from the book of Romans onwards to the end of the New Testament, right, as we walk through the epistles and we see this lived out for this new community of faith, we see that there is no category for Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. So let me walk you through a few texts so we can see this. This is the pattern. When the Apostle Paul wrote, for example, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, he asked, they were living in, in sexual sin, there was immorality that was creeping in, and so he asked them pointedly, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't qualify that statement. He doesn't say, do you know, those of you who have you know, received the second blessing and received a level of spiritual maturity and have received the Holy Spirit, don't you guys know that? No, he, he throws this out for the whole church. He says, if you're a Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has put the Holy Spirit in you. So how can you go on living that way? Now, he goes, he says the same thing in Romans 5, differently, different point. But in Romans 5, he writes, and again, he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, there's no qualifier. He doesn't have a category in his mind for, you know, some of the Christians in the Roman church who, who don't have God's love being poured to them through the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, if you're, if you're a Christian, This is the gift that you have. The Holy Spirit is like dumping this jug of the love of God in your heart each day. And he shares that beautiful truth with the whole congregation. We could could list a number of examples like this. I'll point to one more because this one's really significant. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he warned in chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now I'm going to assume that none of us are are old enough that we would have ever used this. Um, but back in the day, if you were sending a letter, and this was a formal letter, and you needed to ensure that it was not opened by anyone who wasn't the recipient, they would use the wax seal. So, for example, a king. A king sends out his letter. Well, then he's, he writes the letter, and he seals the letter, but then he, he takes the wax, and melted wax, and he takes his special signet ring, which is unique to him. Nobody else has a signet ring like this, and he seals it 
to the, to the effect that when this letter is received, they'll know that, hey, th- you know, this letter hasn't been opened, and this is definitely officially from that king, because here is his unique seal. And the Apostle Paul is using that language and saying, that's what, the Holy, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Because you have the Holy Spirit, he's, he is this unique seal from God, identifying you as a true believer, identifying you as a true child of God, which means there's no category for a Christian who doesn't have the seal. You, you're, if you don't have the seal, then you're not a Christian. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit. That is the pattern that we see. And that is what causes us to say, well, then what on earth is happening here? So now we have to deal with the mystery because this doesn't fit the pattern. Here we have in Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read verse 14 to 17. So with that in our mind, let's listen to this again. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. And, and maybe you say, well, they, I guess they weren't, really, they weren't really saved before he came. Philip, maybe Philip didn't preach a, a very clear gospel. Or, I don't think that that's a, a viable solution because it doesn't say that the apostles came and then preached again, you know, got it right, corrected what Philip had wrong. No, it says they came and what did they do? They laid hands on them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, well then, what is happening? I think as we look at the progression of the book of Acts, the mystery becomes a little less mysterious. So now I'm going to challenge you some critical thinking. You don't need to share the answer, but I want you to think. This pattern of truly saved people not yet having received the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts thus far with what we've read, have we seen this before in the book of Acts? Can you think of any group of people that were truly, authentically followers of Jesus Christ but who didn't yet have the Holy Spirit? Hopefully, your mind is going to Acts chapter 1. And you're thinking about that early church, the the early disciples, this group of 120 believers. They were really saved, folks. Like, they watched Jesus ascend to heaven. These are are the real deal. And yet, it's not until chapter 2 at Pentecost, which is 10 days after the ascension, when finally the, the Spirit falls on this people. Okay, and that was the moment where now God is, the, this new covenant, this promises of old are being fulfilled and landing emphatically on the people of God. Jesus has unlocked this blessing that we were promised from days of old. So, that, so we saw that there, but now what's happening here? Well, we're moving to stage two of God's plan for the world. The gospel's coming out of Jerusalem. Now it's going to Judea and Samaria. And you have this new group of people, a group of people that, that this group hates. And these people, now there's mass conversions. Philip's there. Notice, none of the apostles are, are there. Philip is there. He's one of the seven. And, and everybody's coming to Christ, and they're all getting baptized and stuff, but, but yet they haven't yet received the Spirit. And it's not until the apostles come. They come to see, like, is this real? The cultists? The, the Sumerians? Really? And they come, and they see this is the real deal. They lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit falls on this group of people. And I would suggest to you that what we're meant to see here is you know, the Samaritan Pentecost. This is God writing with, you know, all bold, all cap letters, yes, they are part of the covenant community too. 
Yes, they have received the blessing in the same way that you received the blessing. And in God's wisdom, he didn't allow that to happen until the apostles themselves could witness this so that they could go back to, the, to Jerusalem, to the Jews who hated the Samaritans and say, it's the real deal. We saw it. We watched as the Holy Spirit fell and these people were filled. I think that's what's happening here. And, and I think it's emphasizing the fact that the gospel, as it breaks new ground, creates a whole new community. That's what it does. It unites people who shouldn't be united. It's been doing that from the very beginning. It does it now. But again, having said that, I look out and I think perhaps some of us don't yet see how beautiful this miracle is. I, I'm praying that as we go to this third and final point that we'll be helped to see just how glorious this is. I have loved studying and praying through this this week. So with our third point, praying that God will just open our eyes to see how awesome this is. We see that as the gospel breaks new ground, it overcomes old hostilities. So now we can talk about why this is so amazing. I mean, these folks hated each other. All right, we know that. We know that they hated each other. But this hatred actually goes back a thousand years. So this, you know, we don't really have a category in our minds for a thousand-year-old hatred. Canada hasn't existed for a thousand years. This hatred goes back deep to the, to the 10th century B.C. 10th century B.C., if you know your, your church history or the Israelites' You had the, the tribes, and they were all united under King David, right? Israel's all united. And then under Solomon, and they built the temple, and it's, whoo, it's this powerhouse of a nation. But then under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, we see this fracture and division. And he's a foolish guy. He listens to his friends. And, the, and now we see the schism. So there's the southern tribe, and then the, the ten northern tribes. They break off, and they say, forget you. That's the beginning of this hostility. But then fast forward to the 7th century B.C., and that's when we hear about the Assyrian invasion. And you've heard me talk about this before. But remember how the Assyrians came and they wiped out the northern tribes? Well, that's these guys. These, these guys are what were the northern tribes. They wiped them out, and then what the Assyrians did was they sent some of the rich ones back to live in Assyria. But with those who were in poverty, in order to keep them weak and to keep them from revolting, they needed to, to ruin whatever sense of you know, cultural commitment they had. And so they would take people from all the other tribes that they had defeated, and they would just mix and match them. And so now you're, you're marrying Egyptians, you're marrying all this, and this community is now this, like, hot pot, melting pot. And so we see this in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 17. So here the southern tribe is looking out at what's happening here, and here's how they describe it. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Cuptha and Ava and Hamath and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So this is happening. People are coming in and out. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And so here, way back, this is, this is the south, these are the Jews, and they're looking at Samaria, what's become the Samaritans, and, and they're saying they're not Jews. They're, they're, they're cultists. And in effect, they were. You know, they're not observing the, the commandment, the law. They're mixing and matching with all of the nations. They're just this hodgepodge mess. The Jews saw them as, um, as dogs, essentially. They're not true Jews, and they don't worship God the way that they ought to. They're heretics. And that was this hatred that seeped down, and again, a thousand years old. So then in Luke 9, we catch a glimpse of this. And in Luke 9, Jesus is, is making his way to Jerusalem, 
But in order to get there, he's passing through Samaria. And so Jesus plans to stop and to minister in Samaria. And so some people go ahead of him. The text says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So you can imagine this the Samaritans here, they've heard about what Jesus is doing. They've heard about, this guy's like, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. Blind people can see. He's flipping the world upside down. But then they, they oh, he's making his way to Jerusalem. We're a rest stop on the way to Jerusalem. Tell Jesus to keep on walking through. We don't want to hear from him. We want nothing to do with him. So you can see that deep-seated hatred, right? And then how do the disciples respond? Well, in the next verse it says, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right, so here you see the, the Jews, the, the apostles. They say, all right, Jesus, let's Sodom and Gomorrah this place. Let's, let's make the, like sulfur. Let's bring it down. Rain fire from heaven. God, look at them rejecting Jesus. How dare they? And there's that deep-seated hatred. This is just the reality. And yet God's plan is for the gospel to begin in Jerusalem and then to go out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, how is that going to happen? How, is, how are we going to overcome this deep vitriol that is at the very core of the identity of these people? You can imagine if the disciples had gone along with, with the plan as it was working out, had persecution never happened, they, they would have shared the gospel in Jerusalem, and then you know, they likely would have sent the apostles themselves to share the gospel now with Samaria. And you can imagine the, the apostles kind of walking out and saying, hey, you know, we're here, these Jewish apostles. We're here. God's doing an amazing new thing. Look, it's been happening in Jerusalem, and now we're bringing it, it to you, Samaritans. And secondhand, here, you get to enjoy what they're enjoying in Jerusalem. They would have stoned them. They would have killed this. Oh, here, this again? This, we get the leftovers from Jerusalem. You think we need what you guys have? We don't want what you have. We want nothing to do with you, because that's what the pattern's been all along. So what does God do? Just think about this. I loved just meditating on this this week. What does God do? Well, he stirs up persecution in Jerusalem. And now you see Stephen. Stephen is stoned. He's murdered. And the Hellenists, the Hellenists, remember they were the Greek-speaking Jews who already were like second-class citizens? The Hellenists are forced out of the city by threat of life. They're being accused of opposing the temple. They're being cast out by the Jews, and they flee for their lives, and they wind up in Samaria. And now the Samaritans are saying, whoa, why, why are the Jews trying to kill you? And they come in, and you know, these, these second-class citizens already say, oh, well, they, they think we're opposing the temple, and they're accusing us of trying to bring down the system. And now the Samaritans are listening. Like, well, what on earth? Well, yeah, they, they killed, they murdered Stephen. They put my friend in prison. And the Samaritans are saying, well, those guys are the worst. What's happening? And, and Philip can lean in and say, well, they're opposing us because we're preaching the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and let me tell you about what Jesus has come to do. Let me tell you. And, then, and he's working signs and wonders. And now these Samaritans who had a shield that was a, a mile thick, right, who had hard hearts that were just solid granite, suddenly they're softened by these, these misfits who have been chased out of Jerusalem, who have been disenfranchised by their own people. Suddenly, like these, suddenly the doors open, and they receive the gospel as preached by Philip, and they're saved. And then come marching the apostles. They're like, whoa, you telling me the Samaritans have received the gospel? We've got to see this. So now in come the apostles, and they, they look at what's been done, and they say, this is the real thing. And the Samaritans are willing to receive this now because they've, 
again, receive the gospel. And so the apostles pray for them. They receive the Spirit. And now the apostles get to go back to Jerusalem, who hated these guys, and to say, they're not heretics at all. They're family. We saw it with our own eyes. God gave them the Spirit in the same way he gave the Spirit to us. And now this community's formed. That's miraculous. If, if the apostles were sitting in Jerusalem trying to make a plan for how to reach Samaria, nobody would have written out that plan. But it was the only one that would have worked. Like, God can use whatever means necessary. But in his wisdom, you look at this plan that he drew up. It's, it's perfect. He's so wise. And then I love this detail. Who goes to Samaria? Which of the apostles go? Let me read this to you. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. John. It was James and John who were so angry at Samaria that they said, Jesus, let's turn this place, let's roast them. Let's send these folks to hell. Let's burn up the city, scorched earth. And then God in his wisdom says, let's send John. And John comes into Samaria and John sees they're us. And all that deep-seated hatred in John, gone, displaced, every lesser power displaced by the gospel. And God uses John to lay his hands on these people. And instead of fire falling from heaven and consuming them, the fire of God falls and the Holy Spirit changes this whole people group. And John is the one to do it. And that's what God does. I love this. How wise is our God? How powerful is this gospel? It heals generational wounds. It overcomes old hostilities. It turns enemies into brothers and sisters. We're concluding. We're coming to a close. I just want you to think about this. I said we don't have a category for thousand-year-old hostilities here. We haven't, we haven't existed that long as a nation. But I just sat in my chair and I thought, Lord, where do I feel defeated? Where do I look and just say, it's impossible. It's just impossible. In this sinful broken world there are deep-rooted hurts long-standing differences that do seem insurmountable i got to thinking about how will the gospel ever be received by an indigenous community that at the very core of their identity feels as if the church betrayed them how do how do we overcome that ever and i confess i have no plan i have no idea but i come out of this story and i just say i don't need a plan like god's got a plan he knows how to heal generational wounds how are we going to minister, I thought, to this young generation that, that looks at Christianity and all they see are a bunch of, of bigots. All they see is this cauldron of prejudice. That, that's, that's how they see us. How, am, how are they even going to give us the time of day to hear the gospel? Again, I have no idea. But God has a way. What about those swaths of people and we know so many of them, who left the church because they were brought up in the church and they watched the hypocrisy. And they watched the, the, their parents pretending to be something that they're not. And they watched as, as the leader of their church you know, was caught up in a scandal. And they look at the church and they see a den of lions that hurts people. How, though, and they're all around us. How are we going to reach them with the gospel? That seems impossible. I don't have a plan and yet I know that God can make a way. And I'm reminded in this story that our God is the healer of generational wounds, the restorer of the disenfranchised, the redeemer of the world. And I don't know how he will do it, but I don't need to know how he will do it. They didn't know how he would do it. I know he's called us to be faithful. And he knows how to mobilize his people, and he knows how to reach the lost. 
and he knows how to heal those wounds, and he takes those mountains and he turns them into molehills because they're not insurmountable for him at all. And so that's, we're thinking at a cultural level, but just as we close, I want you to think now at a personal level because as I look out across this room, I suspect that for many of you, you have those people in your lives and you just think, I'll never get over the mountain. You know, my, my spouse's heart is as hard as a stone. I try to talk to my sister about the gospel, and every time I even mention the name of Jesus, her blood boils. My, my child, they look at me, and, and I can't talk to them about Jesus because all they see when they look at me is they, they think I'm a homophobe. There's, I can't break through. I can't get through the narrative. I, I'm just, it's, it's lost. It feels hopeless. Feels like the story's over. I can't even muster the faith to pray. And I just want you to see in God's word that God is not done. He's, the story's not over. It's not as hopeless as the enemy wants you to think that it is. Stephen was pelted with stones. As the life fled from his body, it looked for all the world like the enemy had dealt the death blow to the church. But in fact, what he had actually inadvertently done is he had unlocked the hard hearts of the Samaritans and unleashed the people of God into the world. It was hopeless. Sometimes it looks and feels hopeless. I know that. I feel that. I felt that this week, thinking about somebody in my life who I had essentially given up on, who I just, I couldn't even muster the faith to pray. I feel that. But let's stop listening to our feelings this morning. If I could encourage you, they serve a purpose, but if the purpose of our feelings is to, is to spiral us into hopelessness, then it's time to shut down the feelings and listen to the truth. What do we know? What do we know? We know that our God is in control. We know that our God has a plan. We know that our God has done this before. He has surpassed that mountain before. He has softened that hard heart before. He did it right here. How could I forget? I was the hard heart. This is what he does. What do I know? I know that the gospel is powerful. Even when I'm tempted to toy with it and be flippant with it, it changes lives. It flips the world upside down. I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it. I know he can do it again. What do I know? I know that God's not done. And as we proclaim this gospel and as, as it breaks new ground, the powers that seem so intimidating are displaced in an instant. And, and new fellowship and unity and community where there was only hatred and vitriol is created. And old hostilities that seemed absolutely insurmountable are overcome. That's what God did. That's what God is doing. That's what he will do. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you. I thank you for your wisdom. Lord, you reached the Samaritans. We're so far removed from that miracle. I pray that you'd awaken our hearts just to rejoice and delight in that miracle today, 2,000 years removed. Thank you for saving the Samaritans. Thank you for taking a people who, who had been cast off, a people who had been forced to live apart, a people who had adopted lies, and had lost their identity. And thank you for making them children of God. And then, Lord, as I transpose that in my heart, thank you that you did that right here in this place with each and every one of us. Thank you that you can do it again. 
God, I just confess that I, I am weak in my faith. Lord, help our unbelief. Right now, I just pray by the power of your Spirit that you would lay on our hearts those people, maybe those people groups, that we've allowed the, the enemy to deceive us into believing that, that, that it's hopeless. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with faith, and I pray, Lord, you'd fill us with urgency, and I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the resiliency to go and proclaim the gospel. Lord, help us to remember that as the gospel was proclaimed to the religious leaders and it was rejected and the church was, was beaten and imprisoned, that that rejection was what opened the door for those to receive it in Samaria. And so, Lord, in our lives, as we share the gospel, you're going to close doors and you're going to open doors. And we don't know which doors will close and we don't know which doors will open. But what we see time and time again in your word, help us to know it in our hearts, that when you close doors and when you open doors, you're working a perfect plan that is so far beyond us. We can't see it. So God, help us not to despair when we share the gospel with our child one more time, with our friend one more time, with our spouse one more time, with my brother one more time, God, with our neighbors one more time, my coworker. God, and if you launch us out, Lord, and if you, you fracture relationships, Lord, we just trust that you're going to lead us to where we need to be. But God, what we cannot do and what we repent of doing is just sitting idly by in our hopelessness and keeping this glorious gospel to ourselves. So Lord, mobilize us and use us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?